Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother forty wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty-one. Or did she? Only the restless ghosts said to haunt the strange, narrow house in Fall River, Massachusetts, know for sure. And they're not talking. Yet. I'm Diane Ladley. Storytellers named me America's Ghost Storyteller. And this is part one of The Strange Yet True Occurrence on the Night Lizzie Borden Died, the second episode in my podcast, Hysteria. It's history that raises the tiny hairs on the back of your neck. Please be advised that this episode contains graphic descriptions of violence and may not be suitable for younger or more sensitive listeners. And with that, let's continue. It was the crime that shocked a nation. The sensational headlines sparking riots in the streets. A wealthy man and his wife, brutally hacked to death with a hatchet axe in their own home, in broad daylight, with others in the house. The act was so vicious, so filled with savage rage, that many assumed it was the act of a raving madman on the loose. Imagine the horror of a prim and proper Victorian society when the victim's daughter, 32-year-old Lizzie, a beloved Sunday school teacher, was arrested and charged with the murders. There have been countless essays, biographies, novels, movies, radio dramas, a Broadway play, and even a ballet about Lizzie Borden. But what most people don't realize is that Lizzie was declared innocent. You can't convict a person when there's no solid evidence, no legal grounds. But on playgrounds... Lizzie Borden has declared guilty every time a child recites that jump rope rhyme. The Borden double murder case was the perfect crime, never solved with a host of theories and possible suspects. The only thing that true crime fans can agree on is that no matter who did the deed, justice had never come to the true killer. Then again, maybe it did. There's one small but well-documented historical footnote 35 years after the murders, a very strange, perhaps even supernatural event that occurred on the night Lizzie Borden died. But first, let's revisit the facts of the case. It was August 4th, 1892. A Thursday, the hottest summer anyone could remember, with daily temperatures over 100 degrees. At the breakfast table that morning was Andrew Borden, described even by friends as a cold, humorless man who made a fortune in ruthless real estate deals, shady banking, and an underhanded mortuary undertaking business. A miserly multimillionaire who hated to spend even a penny of his vast wealth and who had made a great number of enemies. Also at the table was his second wife, Abby, once described by Lizzie as that fat, stupid, and loathsome woman. 
And from most accounts, Lizzie was right. Many considered Abby to be an unpleasant and unlikable woman. John Morse, brother to Andrew's first wife and still a friend and sometime legal advisor, was at the table too. He had arrived unexpectedly last evening from his farm out of town, strangely without an overnight bag, change of clothes, or even a toothbrush. John explained he wanted to visit relatives in Fall River, but preferred to stay with his friend Andrew. The maid, Bridget, was serving the meal and would enjoy her breakfast afterwards. And later that morning, having a breakfast of only coffee and cookies was Lizzie Borden. 32 years old, red-haired, rather plump, never married, but loved children, animals, travel, and theater. She was her father's favorite daughter. Emma Borden, Lizzie's much older sister, was away staying with friends in a nearby town. Emma had left because she couldn't stand to be in the same house with her father and stepmother. Andrew had already put much of his wealth and property in Abby's name, and John had hinted that Andrew had even changed his will, giving most to Abby and very little to his daughters, ensuring they would be utterly dependent on their despised stepmother for the rest of their lives. Then Andrew did the unthinkable. He gave Abby the deed to their summer home, the farm where the girls had so many happy childhood memories, the place Andrew had promised to his daughters years before, taken from them with no explanation and given to that fat, stupid, loathsome woman who had taken their dead mother's place. The screaming arguments lasted for days and now had settled into a seething anger with tension so thick you could cut it with a hatchet axe. Promptly at nine o'clock, Andrew left for his office. John left shortly thereafter. Abby ordered the maid to clean the outside windows, despite the fact that it was already a miserably hot day, and Bridget had been sick that morning, having thrown up several times and suffering a blinding headache. Lizzie claimed that she had been ironing in the dining room, then spent time in the barn, later going into the orchard eating pears picked fresh off their trees. Andrew always insisted that the front and back doors must always be locked and didn't allow his daughters to have their own keys, requiring someone to be inside the house at all times. Sometime between 9.30 and 10 o'clock, Abby was cleaning the guest bedroom. She was on the far side of the bed, bent over, tucking in the sheets. She probably never heard the footsteps creeping behind her. Never saw her murderer's face, never knew who killed her. She didn't even scream when the axe came down for the first time, glancing off the side of her head. She fell to the carpet, arms flailing, and the axe came down again, biting deep into her neck. Still, she tried to get up. The axe struck again and again and again, over and over and over. Blood sprayed across the floor, drenching the carpet and the bed, and hung like a thick red fog in the air. The head finally toppled off, held on only by a thin strand of flesh, and gave her mother forty whacks. At 10.15 that morning, Andrew Borden left his office, feeling sick to his stomach with a bad headache, wanting only to go home to lie down. The maid, Bridget, now cleaning the inside windows, unlocked the front door to let him in. She would later testify that she heard a woman laugh upstairs, <laughs> the sound coming from the stair landing outside the guest bedroom. 
she thought it was Lizzie. It's interesting to note that during the court case, Bridget testified that Lizzie had come downstairs and stood on the stair as she told them that Abby had received a note and been called away to help a sick friend. Lizzie, however, testified she had just started to climb the stairs when Andrew entered, but later changed her story, claiming she had been in the kitchen and walked over to stand on the stairs while talking to her father. Either way, Lizzie was on the stairs, effectively blocking access and the view of Abby's body lying on the floor of the guest bedroom. No such note to Abby was ever found, nor any friend ever stepped forward claiming to have sent a note. When she saw what she had done. Bridget finished the inside windows, then, still feeling ill, went up the back stairs and fell asleep in her tiny room. Andrew used the back stairs to briefly visit the master bedroom, then used the same stairs to go into the parlor, intending to rest and read on the sofa until he felt well enough to return to work. Lizzie finished her ironing in the dining room, then poked her head in the parlor to tell her father she'd be in the barn and left out the kitchen door. It was now 10.55 a.m. The killer had been in the house undetected for nearly an hour and a half and was still there. Andrew's headache was very bad, so he decided to close his eyes for a while. He couldn't put his feet up, the sofa was too short. Instead, he rested his head on the arm of the sofa and dozed. The room was quiet and hot, dust motes stirring in the sunlight coming from the clean window. He did not hear the footsteps creeping across the thick carpet. But perhaps he felt a swirl of air as the hatchet axe was raised over his head, for he opened his eyes and saw his murderer, saw the axe come swinging down. He held up a hand to block the blow, but he was too late. The axe crashed down directly on his face, splitting his nose in half. The axe hit again and again and again, over and over and over, blood spraying the sofa and wall until his face was a grotesque, bleeding patchwork. One eye was especially hacked, cut in half, and dangling from its socket. She gave her father 41. Actually, Andrew took 11 blows to the face, and Abby was struck 19 times. Not as poetically gruesome as the child's rhyme states, but awful enough that the first policeman on the scene ran from the house in horror at the sight of Andrew's mutilation. There was a host of possible suspects, but police focused in on Lizzie and she was arrested seven days later. She had plenty of both opportunity and motive, and the confused, conflicting stories she told police about her movements that day was damning. I won't go into the details of Lizzie's trial here, but it was as sensational, bizarre, and full of unexpected twists and turns as the following century's O.J. Simpson trial. You could read for yourself the actual transcripts of the case online, and let me tell you, a court case in which the prosecuting lawyer digs up one of the victims, cuts off the head, boils it down to the bare bone, and presents it in court like a magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat to show how an axe blade would fit neatly into the broken skull, which caused the accused murderers to faint in shock, makes for compelling reading. 
Lizzie was facing a death sentence. She would have been the first woman executed in that innovative new method of capital punishment, the electric chair. But on June 30th, 1893, after only one hour and six minutes of deliberation, the jury found Lizzie Borden not guilty. Despite all her opportunity, motive, and confused statements, there was simply no evidence to convict her. Lizzie and her sister Emma were now very rich. Out from under her father's miserly thumb, Lizzie could now live the life she always dreamed of having. The sisters bought a large mansion in Fall River and named it Maplecroft. Lizzie traveled, got to know many well-known Broadway stars in New York, threw elaborate parties for them, and reputedly had a torrid lesbian affair with an acclaimed actress. Emma, in stark contrast, became increasingly religious and was utterly appalled at Lizzie's behavior. After one particularly terrible argument, Emma moved out, and the sisters never spoke again for the rest of their lives. Lizzie quieted down in her later years and spent much of her time in her garden at Maplecroft, feeding the birds and animals. She was never accepted in society again, and no one ever came to call. was the perfect murder. Never solved, with a host of theories and suspects, all of whom are now long dead. Today, the Borden Murder House is a successful Victorian-style bed and breakfast. The place is booked solid on the anniversary of the murders, and the innkeepers serve pears and hatchet-shaped cookies in the very same parlor where Andrew was slaughtered. History and that child's jump rope rhyme have long pointed the finger at Lizzie as the murderer that got away. But many of today's Borden scholars offer compelling evidence that Lizzie did not swing that axe, but neither was she innocent. In part two, Hysteria's next episode, we'll open the door to the Borden house wide and shine new light on the dark events of that hot August morning. But then we'll turn off the light and take a step further into the darkness. For you see, strange, ghostly occurrences are constantly being reported at the Borden murder house. Odd, floating lights, disembodied footsteps, a woman laughing, a choking cry, doors, cupboards, and bedside drawers opening and closing of their own accord. Once, a frightened guest reported seeing their mattress sink down before his eyes in the impression of a woman's body. It was in the guest room where Abby was murdered. The house has been the star of countless paranormal TV shows, and psychics and ghost hunters flock there and hope that the blood-drenched ghosts trapped there in those cramped, strange rooms will finally reveal their true killer, or confess to the most infamous unsolved crime of the 19th century. But what if the reason why they haven't spoken yet through seances, Ouija boards, or recorded EVPs is that the ghosts themselves already passed a terrible, terrifying sentence on their killer. In part two of the strange yet true occurrence on the night Lizzie Borden died, 
I'll reveal a well-documented, never-before-told supernatural event that pointed a spectral finger at the real murderer and made them pay. But before you tune into the next episode, will you please take this moment to give me a rating on iTunes or whichever podcast provider you use? Words of praise and constructive criticism alike will really help to put Hysteria higher in the rankings and make it a success for which I would be very grateful. There you can also subscribe to get each free Hysteria episode automatically downloaded to your device whenever a new one is launched every three weeks. Links and sources, references, and music credits for all the episodes can be found on the Hysteria Facebook page. This episode was written and produced by me, Diane Ladley, America's Ghost Storyteller, and is dedicated to my very best of best friends, my sister in every way but DNA, Lori Ware of Indianapolis, Indiana. Happy birthday, Lori. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in to Hysteria. It's history that raises the tiny hairs on the back of your neck.